go. Welcome to Moot, the podcast where mistakes are guaranteed and our point is Moot. I'm Joe and I'm with my friend Jeremy and Hello. his friend, Associate Professor Don Godfrey. Hello. So, <laughs> Professor Don, tell us about Beowulf. Because, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, I don't even know the basics. I didn't even watch the movie with Angelina Jolie. Oof, well, you're better off missing the movie. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of things that could have been better. Hilariously, though, they made Grendel the only character who spoke Old English, so that's interesting. Um, not his mom? No. Oddly enough, Angelina Jolie did not have to learn Old English for her role. So um, what's, uh, what's like the basic story? Like, well, how, how does it start? What, what is it, basically? Sum, summarize it. Sure. So... Um, Beowulf is a pretty standard uh, heroic tale, right? It is about uh, the titular hero, uh, goes by the name Beowulf. He travels to a small hold uh, in um, Denmark, where he helps out a kind of friend and ally defeat a small family of monsters. Uh, and a then, monsters. Yeah, there's like a, a, a mother-son duo. And then there's a big time jump to when Beowulf is old and he has become a king himself. Uh, a king uh, of the Geats is who they're called. Uh, that's uh, meant to be located in Sweden. Uh, and in that final battle, he fights a dragon and dies. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of split into three sections. Like the first... Okay, so he kills a family and then you time warp and then he dies in a battle against a dragon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much. This is the kind of stories that, like, he was their hero. Yeah, it's really interesting because, so the the story itself is about, uh, like, 6th century, um, you know, Scandinavia, right? So it's about these the Geats, the Swedes, and um, the, the Danes. Um, but it is the text that we have is from uh, England, actually, uh, right right before uh, the Battle of Hastings is when they think it was composed, like in the 900s. Uh, um, so it's a, a 900 written, year 900 written document about something that was potentially happening in like the 500s. Uh, so because of that, Beowulf is usually listed as like an Anglo-Saxon story and hero yeah, as he opposed to all over the place. yeah well and I'll try to do some group Dietz sorry it, it said Dietz, Dietz, Geats and Danes well yeah it was uh, the, the Geats so Beowulf is a Geatish prince yeah that's uh, the Swedes right yes and then um, he goes to help out uh, Hrothgar and his family and they are Danes uh, I think they're actually called, um, what is it, shieldings? That's not spelled that way. Uh, <laughs> like sightlings or something. I can't pronounce it, I'm sure. Yeah, pronunciation for me is quite bad, because unfortunately I, I haven't done much. It's uh, like S-C-Y-T-H-I-N-G. Yeah. Not a whole lot of old English studies, at least not for a long time. Um, <laughs> so skits. Uh, but apparently it is semi-related to some stories about... Uh, Rolf Kraki, um, who is kind of like who Hrothgar might not 
I don't know if I remember this right, might be, or at the very least is related to. So it's a whole other series of um, sagas uh, that are usually more historical, less fantastical, uh, that Beowulf might be a version of. Or so a version Beowulf, of those is he like a fictional character or a historical character, or is he like legendary historical, kind of like Gilgamesh? I, I think it's legendary historical, like Gilgamesh, um, for, for a couple of reasons. So one, um, Beowulf might actually be this other character um, from the sagas, uh, Baldvar Briarki which is a terrible pronunciation. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> so they think that he does show up in another text because uh, Hrothgar, who Beowulf goes to help, uh, is a real, well, is also at the very least a, a more real uh, king of the Danes, right? Yeah. Um, and they're pretty confident that, you know, at the end of the Beowulf story, after he's died, he is buried and there's a huge funeral for him. Uh, and they want his burial mound to kind of serve as a, a lighthouse, essentially, off the coast of Sweden. And there are a couple of mounds that would be in the correct location based on uh, the myth. Uh, I don't think they've excavated it um, to actually see what's in there, but they have done, you know, various scans. And they do realize that there are, you know, there is a burial in the mound. Uh, and it would be of a size that would be, you know, royal level right so why why haven't they excavated that yet i mean that seems like it's like such an old story and i would imagine that there's a lot of people interested in this and you only need one guy with a shovel yeah i'm not really sure why you know um i know they've been like they've known about it for uh, a little bit um it it might be just because like the story of beowulf as like a manuscript it's kind of all over the place. Um, no, they found a mound, right? It's like, well, yeah. Beowulf could be buried here, guys. Who who wants to help me dig? Yeah, I, I think that's that's about where we're at uh, with that. I, I don't know if I ever saw a good reason why. And then people didn't want to dig? Yeah, so it is in... Oh, I cannot pronounce this. Uh, <laughs> so I guess... Uh, it, Joe, you'll, you'll have to, I don't know, yell at me for some of this pronunciation here. Uh, Sklenda? I will get violent. What? <laughs> Sklenda, uh, a village in Vastergotland, Sweden. Vastergotland? Yeah. Götland. Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you spell uh, the, the name Sklenda? Uh, S-K-A-L-U-N-D-A. You, what, S-K, Skald? Skull, and then what's uh, the U N D A. Yep. Skalunda. Okay. Skalunda. So yeah, there's a burial mound there. And they just haven't haven't decided to, to dig it up yet. I don't know if there's a good reason. I mean there okay. must be some bureaucracy stuff, because like it can't be like lack of manpower. Yeah. If I lived in the area and they asked me to shovel for free, I'd still do it. I mean it's Beowulf. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I wonder if if they dig if they dig it up and they don't find any artifacts, like would DNA sampling help? Because I can only imagine a CSI episode where they they take the DNA sampling and then Beowulf comes up on the computer and there's no other <laughs> explanation for how they got there. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, how? Like, is there is there like a a, a lineage or a family tree that 
claims to date back to Beowulf? Is there? Well, so, you know, funny trick about that, and perhaps relatively conveniently, uh, at the end of Beowulf, it, it's mentioned that he doesn't have any kids. It's a very difficult for him to have a lineage. Oh, that's right, yeah. Like, that was supposed to be, like, part of the great tragedy is, uh, you know, he becomes I mean, this great king, and he protects people, he dies. Does it say that he doesn't have any legitimate heirs, or is it like... Because I don't think he used a condom, and I don't think it was celibate. Yeah, well, I mean, it just, yeah, basically it just says he has no heirs, so no one uh, can carry on in his... Uh, yeah. So any, any, anyone, anyone can make, anyone from that area can just make the claim that, no, yeah, I, I am the bastard, great, 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 and so on. Yeah, and 100%. Just, <laughs> I know, because he came from in a dream. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I I have a question for you. So, because a lot of, it seemed, when I was reading this, it seemed like a lot of token was based on this. Oh, yeah. And what are the chances that Bilbo going in and stealing the cup from Smog is based on the thief stealing from the dragon? Oh, about a thousand percent. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, th- th- that one is very on the nose. <laughs> so, yeah, so some, some back story on the manuscript might help because this is where um, J.R.R. Tolkien does come in pretty heavily. So you know Beowulf is, we only have one copy quite literally. There's one one copy that I think the British Museum uh, is holding on to. Didn't it get burned or something? Wait no first this is interesting. First they holding on to everything. They tried to like dye it or something to see the text better, and then it mm-hmm. got, kept getting darker and darker. So then, other people couldn't translate it or something, and only one guy's translation of that copy exists. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, an ancient artifact. You only have one of. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting. So it was a text that was written, um, or at the very least copied. Um, right around well it was created right around the year like 1000 uh and then somehow it ended up in the like ownership of uh, an individual who died roughly in like uh the 1500s uh 1570 um and it just kind of get got passed back and forward between various peoples before it eventually ended up in the holdings uh, of the british museum uh the british museum got a copy of it uh, in the 1750s. Um, what do you mean a copy? Like, well, the, the only extant copy. You know, they think, as is the case with a lot of handwritten versions, uh, that as one uh, version of a manuscript is starting to deteriorate, particularly back in, like, you know, we're talking 1200s, um, it would have been copied to a new edition. Um, but it, they didn't make more than one, or we cannot find more than one. So uh, that's that that's uh, I think that's the problem with the old methods they used to copying, which was basically looking and writing. Yeah, if only they uh, had the printing press. We could have had so many Beowulfs. That's true, right? So we have this text, and for the longest time, um, nobody really knew what to do with it uh, because academics. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of that, but also like it's uh, a fantastical story right even though it has historical or pseudo historical characters in it the focus of the story that we have is beowulf fights a bunch of monsters 
uh, and then like in between, occasionally there are stories about rulership or kingdoms or um, uh, failure to protect uh, groups of people. But for the most part, it's focused on the supernatural. So a lot of historians or people who are interested in, um, you know, the 500s, five to 600s, which is when they think this would have been uh, about, it's kind of useless, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not going to tell you what they lived, but it's, I mean, it's going to tell you what they enjoyed and what they believed in. Yeah, right. So it, it's, it's useful from that perspective, but as a um, people using it as like a historical document, it's almost, not entirely, almost worthless. Because there's a certain level of like back in time, isn't history basically the same as fantasy anyway? Yeah. I mean, that's like, an interesting... In terms of our reality to it, like even though it actually happened, we can never really know. Every, for all we know, it can all be like just, you know, yeah. so far back that it might, might as well not be. It's like someone living in France right now is might as well not alive to us unless we go to France. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea of history in general, I think people put, ooh, I don't know, is this too much of a hot take? Uh, I think people put too much stock in history being like a factual representation because it, it can only be an interpretation of uh the past right yeah it's um, like some, some some things are important that we are like clear on like you know that the holocaust happened and shit like that oh yeah mm-hmm. but when you go certain back like when you go back a thousand two thousand years it's all really fairy tales even if it's true yeah or that's... these are like if if he actually did all of the things he did or not right. it doesn't really affect us today yeah, and that's where you have to come in to, to think, well, what else can we glean from it? Because, you know, you're right. Um, so when this was written down, assuming it followed the tradition of a lot of mythology, where it was something that people told um, orally, right? It was just a story that people knew and memorized and they could tell it. Uh, it was written down, uh, you know, 500 years later. So it's a story about like the 500s written in the year 1000. It'd be like if we were trying to tell stories about the 1520s. Yeah, yeah. Which all you got is what granddad told you. Yeah, it would be several times removed uh, and we wouldn't have a solid grasp. We'd have the big broad strokes. Um, so, you know, historians didn't want to do anything with it. So... Kind of like the Bible in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, you're it's like yeah, thematic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Tolkien came along and he was a, a linguist, uh, effectively, uh, particularly of like early Anglo Saxon and kind of Norse um, mm-hmm. language. And he had this famous lecture where he basically said that, okay, so let's ignore anything historical from this, let's just read Beowulf as a story. And as a story, we can learn these things. And this is true for uh, how we generally think about mythology now. You know, what is fundamentally human about it, or what are the bigger uh, kind of cultural contexts that we can learn? Uh, that was a cool take. Um, and so he had this whole lecture about like, hey, Beowulf is an important literary document. You know, don't look at it as a historical set of rules or laws. Look at it to figure out like, well, what does what does it mean to be a monster? What does it mean to be a good king? Um, what kind of lessons should we take away? And as Tolkien went on to create his own, uh, you know, fantasy prehistory of uh, England specifically, 
he tended to borrow quite a lot from the stuff that he studied. So, you know, towards the end of Beowulf, there is a, a segment where a thief sneaks into a dragon's hoard and steals a cup and it unleashes this, you know, fire-breathing monster that yeah. destroys a local kingdom, uh, which, you know, happens exactly almost beat for beat the same in The Hobbit. Uh, yeah, and in I fact... Guess, I guess they weren't so big on plagiarism back then. You know, it's it's <laughs> cop and... It's, uh, what do you call it? Um, public domain. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's, so it's like if you... Over the date. Yeah, if you want to write your your own Robin Hood story, nothing is stopping you. Uh, <laughs> well, also, also, the thief is unnamed, whereas Bilbo's the main character, so he doesn't... Nothing That's that true. does is taken from what Beowulf does, which would be a bigger thing, I think. Yeah, I think the only place where it's really kind of, um, and I don't necessarily mean this to be shade for Tolkien. That's not what I want the podcast to become. But um, <laughs> yeah, Tolkien was a disgusting man. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, the only time that he gets really egregious is um, so the names of the dwarves in The Hobbit. That yeah. are literally pulled from the Voluspa, uh, one of the few remaining uh, kind of Norse pieces of poetry we have, uh, where the Voluspa is this witch who's giving these prophecies to Odin. And at one point, uh, there's just a list of dwarven names. She's like, oh, hey, here are all the dwarves that I know. And then she lists all the names, and they're just the Hobbit dwarves. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, in basically the same order, with the exception that uh, Gandalf is in there, but he's a dwarf in the Valspa. <laughs> Maybe the Hobbit is like a a fan fiction, so like yeah. he's like telling about what those dwarves were actually up to. No, and I think that's yeah, the thing. Let me tell you a little bit more about him in detail. I I think that's it, right? Because we don't actually know very much about um, Norse culture to a certain point. Like we have very few. Um, documents that explain their uh, religious systems and their systems of belief. Um, yeah, like most of the stuff we think we know is just like conjecture from you know the Edda. Yeah, exactly. And and even then, you know, and that's something that I think people complain about with Beowulf as well, uh, particularly if you're thinking of the the Edda by um, Snorri Sturluson, uh-huh. is that you know it they weren't written to be true to the original culture you know they were being repurposed at the time so like what is it snorri wanted to make a uh a a book of how to write poetry essentially and needed to include all of this mythological content because that's how people used to write poetry like how they wrote poetry about those things like even the even the old norse religion you know we don't even know if that was their religion like all about the Thor, Odin, Loke, Freya. We don't even know if that was their religion, if they actually believe that, because we got it all from, you know, Snorre Sturluson. Yeah. And uh, he was a Christian, so he didn't even believe it himself. Right. <laughs> so it's I mean, like... to, to bring it back to Beowulf, the thing that I, I, I tried to hunt up be- before this was, um, you know, I've already heard Beowulf described as like an Anglo-Saxon culture hero um, which has always been slightly odd to me because the characters in it aren't uh, you know they're proto-English yeah they're not actually Anglo-Saxon yeah they're they're Swedes and Danes and like yeah um, 
which is fine because you know i guess you know the the angles from denmark did migrate and try to settle in uh early england um, yeah, and also so it was like the english who wrote the story you know yeah i, I think that's where they like yeah finally make that connection is that that's where we found it and so therefore it, it is anglo-saxon it's um, like uh, like the whole thing about uh saint george you know the the mm, dragon slayer yeah but in the story he's not even english he's right Turkish. well i saw one interpretation that said uh that or because Georgians. beowulf it, means either georgia or turkey what's that uh saint george he's either from georgia or turkey right he's from the other side of europe Yeah, um, I, I saw one interpretation that said it's because Beowulf uh, means war wolf. Mm. Uh, and he's so closely connected with animal instinct and like primal rage and all that, that it's still a very English take on somebody who's not English because an Englishman would be pitched, would be painted as a more proper person. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. That, like, even when he brags, because he has these monologues which yeah. um, Denal turned me on to, the, to, to uh, Maria Headley's interpretation, which they sound more like rap battles and monologues when she does them. Mm-hmm. But essentially he stands up and, and brags and, and this one guy calls him out um, in Hrothgar's court. He, he basically says, well, why are you so special? And he just spends a bunch of time bragging. And that would, and one of the things that this interpretation had pointed out was that, well, a Britishman wouldn't do that because he would prove by deed that he's, you know, a man and he doesn't need to boast and he's not that, you know, right. an Englishman would be above that. Yeah, that's what all the insults say. <laughs> <laughs> I could do it if I wanted to, I just don't want it. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole scene, uh, you know, Unferth, the, the guy who calls out Beowulf, uh, is a minor character, but he's pretty much there to be slapped around um, and just be proven wrong the whole time. Yeah. Well, and, and then and then he's he's dominated because he, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's how I interpreted it was that the whole point, like he he accompanies Beowulf to take on Grendel's mother after yes. he's been proven wrong. So that's like him being, you know, the the the, the baggage boy. <laughs> right. I mean, I uh, literally remember one of my undergraduate English professors um, even reading more into that. Uh, as a concept because Unferth lends Beowulf uh, his family's weapon, his sword to go take to fight um, Grendel's mother, who is the, that's the character's name. She doesn't get named otherwise. <laughs> um, and of course, when Beowulf uses the sword against her, you know, the, the sword uh, does not perform. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh it, man. It, it cannot. lit by God. Call yeah. Pfizer. <laughs> they'll get you up again bro ah <laughs> uh, okay so that's why he fought Grendel's mom yeah actually there's that's a whole interesting segment um, I'm gonna fuck your mom bro a little bit uh, and I'm actually this, this new version uh, which I do recommend uh, by Headley, Headley's translation um, is great for that because it does use more common language um, of today, right? Which I think is the the number one thing you'd want a new translation to do. Uh, so, like in particular, 
ordinarily Beowulf starts with something in old English. It's the word uh, uh, which doesn't translate very well out of old English because it's kind of just like a word to get someone's attention. So oh, like, like hear ye, hear ye or step. Yeah. So yeah, people have used um, people have tried using stuff like hark, you know, if you want to keep it sounding old timey. Um, some people have tried listen. You gotta translate something. It's like making it sound old is stupid. Yeah, that that is a, a big um, gripe that I think a lot of people have with these translations. Because obviously when it was written down, it was written down with the language of the time, but did the person writing it down use language that they thought was archaic, you know? <laughs> It'd be like if you tried to copy Shakespearean language now. Yeah, out of memory. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, you'd be throwing around like pretties and yawns and yeah, things like that. And you wouldn't exactly know how they're used correctly because like that's not how... You just throw like an F at the end of everything. Yeah. But yeah. it yees without realizing how that worked. Um, ye isn't pronounced ye at all. It's pronounced the. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I am so missing those letters. The pattern is like, no, the old idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean headley does a great job and I, i'd love to get uh jeremy's opinion because I, I did force him to read it um and, and jeremy's a poet and i'd be curious to know what his take on this is but uh what headley does here so the first line of beowulf starts with that word which can mean all kinds of things uh she translated it this way so this is the opening lines of beowulf bro Tell me we still know how to speak of kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were. Brave, bold, glory-bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the Spear Dane song hoarded for hungry times. People always complain about like the younger generations, don't they? Yeah, actually. There, there are like cuneiform tablets about people complaining about, oh, the younger generation, all they want to do is learn writing. <laughs> Yeah, oh, all these kids wasting their time in front of those parchments. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, um, that was the thing when literacy came about. Scholars of the day said, "Well, what are they going to remember? They don't need to remember anything. This is going to yeah. ruin the mind." <laughs> Genius. Um, so yeah, this this translation uses like aggressively modern uh, English and idiom. Uh, I, I think at one point she drops a hashtag blessed. <laughs> in here to describe uh, I'm still processing the fact that they try to get attention by saying hot yeah you know it's, it's like, just like I get the whole like come on come all step right up you know that that makes sense but then just going into a crowd and going what yeah so I mean, it'll, it'll turn heads but what a way to start a story that's such an interesting part of these earlier stories is um, the framing of it it's like starting a story with a sneeze. A little bit. It is... The, the way it's best described is, right, so this was written down, but it's a written version of something that would have been told, um, you know, by a, a shop or a, a bard, you know, somebody who is um, an oral storyteller. And yes. uh, so, yeah, it would start and maybe they would play music or maybe it would just be just spoken word. Uh, but, you know, how do you start a story? Well, you got to get people's attention. Uh, so uh, I think the other famous translation that people know best is by uh, Seamus Haney who's a, an Irish uh, poet 
And he started with so because he remembered his family uh, when they would tell stories. They would always start it by just going so, and then they'd roll into the story, uh, which is why I, I do appreciate uh, Headley uh, starting it with just the ever present bro, because uh, it is a very broy man culture um, that she's kind of like interpreting. Uh, I mean, very interesting. Hmm. This is Beowulf. I mean, the yeah. guy was like, you know, you know, unsuccessfully fucking moms and killing dragons. He, he was a bro. <laughs> yeah. He's a bro in dire need of Cialis, but that's it. Yeah, bro. I think that's true. <laughs> so, Jeremy, what, what did you make of the poetry, such as it is? Um. Well, and I remember my first, every year of grad school, we would get together including in the, the intro and the outro. And we discussed whether poetry is still a living art. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things, one of the reasons you do that is because the very first time you approach those questions, the types of things that you ask undergrads, like, you know, what does poetry mean to you? And they're like, well, goth kids and really old people rhyming. And Robert Frost, someone might throw out Robert Frost or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the thing that keeps poetry in danger of feeling like a dead art is that it is the perception of it is still kind of archaic that poetry needs to be archaic that it needs to be obtuse and difficult to understand and it needs to rhyme and what this translation what i liked what i liked about it so much is that it didn't give a shit about any of that like beowulf is one of the things that everybody reads and everybody knows as archaic and at least like nah let's not let's not keep the archaicness in there like she talks in the intro where she says you know i want i want this there were there were times when i was translating where i felt compelled to err on the side of sounding old and she does have like some here tos and some harks and things in there um but for the most part what she's trying to do is make it intelligible for a modern audience and I like that she kept the alliteration and she played it up even more because I always thought alliteration got a bad rap. And w- <laughs> I think in excess, it sounds like ridiculous, but for something like this, it almost supplants the archaicness having the extra alliteration. I don't think you could get away with that in a modern poem and, and submit it to a literary magazine. Like they wouldn't accept it. like this sounds like this was written by you know a 16 year old but i think it did a lot of favors for the script i liked it because it was new like if i taught a class on beowulf i would teach this translation for sure and i would probably assign sections where i would take you know line 300 to 500 or whatever and i would pair it with an older translation so students could see the difference but I think it is successful for modern audiences, but I also think it is very, very decidedly poetic. Hmm. Um, the 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 Keenings, am I saying that right? Is it two E's? I don't remember. Uh, Kennings. Kennings. Two, two N's. Close. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, the, the, the Kennings uh, are as much 
obtuseness that you get because sometimes you have to kind of like piece together with context clues how they fit the rest of the story but the story of itself isn't difficult to understand and I've always kind of sided with the idea that poetry shouldn't be difficult to understand like it can be layered it can have you can have multiple meanings but alienating the audience isn't something you want to do and Unless this is a poet no <laughs> 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 Look at what? me. What's that? No, no, no. I was just thinking like pretentious people. Oh, oh. Well, and, and I think there's some sort of like self-congratulatory backslapping going on when someone writes a really mm. difficult poem mm. and the onus is put on the audience to understand it and not the not it's not the those types of poets feel like it's not their job to be understood. And if you don't understand, it's because you're not intellectual enough. It's like, well, maybe you're just being difficult. I mean, that's uh, that was the whole problem with, as much as one could say, that's the only problem. Uh, that's one of the problems of uh, the modernists, right? Like their yeah. whole thing was that they wanted to be um, purposefully <laughs> difficult. Uh, yeah. it, it was like a style in and of itself. Yeah, and and... I wrote a whole essay sort of lambasting that idea because I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. That's something, you know, since I do also teach um, literature and, and things like that, uh, I think one of the greatest difficulties in covering any text, but uh, poetry explicitly, uh, that has existed over time is, you know, you, you cover stuff like the modernists and you're like, okay, well, these people were hard on purpose. So you need to do extra research to try to understand, you know, not just the meter um, and how like they're using um, certain rules of grammar or not uh, in order to create art. Uh, but as soon as you start going further and further back in time, uh, the texts are still difficult, even if they hadn't originally uh, meant to be just because there's so much age, there's so much distance between a modern audience and um you know the original author uh, right so yeah. like shakespeare right is a key example all students say or at least the stereotypical student for this example says oh shakespeare's so tough oh i don't like shakespeare oh i can't understand it and it's like okay well that's just because the language is really dated <laughs> like shakespeare was essentially the popcorn entertainment of the time <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, it's filled with like dick and poop jokes. I mean, whatever. Yeah, not only that, but like he's got uh, in he's got advertisements in the middle of some of his plays. Um, he for like, ads in his place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to try to think which one it was, but there's one where uh, characters in the play are like, "Oh, we're in London. We should stay at this tavern," and it's a tavern that was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Oh, like, Shakespeare was a sellout." Physically, That's like up the street <laughs> from the Globe Theater. Oh, that's um, fantastic. He's like the most esteemed thespian of them all. And yeah. he's like also the original sellout. Yeah, and that's the thing too, where like, you know, uh, I do think Shakespeare is great because um, I think a lot of his works still uh, play well, particularly if you can get over that initial barrier. Uh, but the reason why we know so much about Shakespeare and we have as many of his plays that we do uh, and we're still missing I think at least 10 or more um, that we know about. Uh, he was also just fantastically popular. So 
we have yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, we, we can definitely say that his work, like it, I mean, it survives like the test of time, right? Yeah. Um, and once again, it's because the meaning shifts, right? So for something like uh, Twelfth Night, the broad comedy sticks, but like the anti-Puritan um, stuff maybe doesn't make as much sense. Uh, yeah. Because we don't have that cultural context to like pick up on it. And I think what's great about this newest translation of Beowulf is something kind of similar where uh, what Headley has done is she's taken a very old text, you know, that was old when it was written down and has modernized it as much as you possibly can while maintaining the same essence. Because uh, kind of the subtext of Beowulf is surprisingly undercutting, you know, because the, the main story is, wow, Beowulf is a super strong guy. Uh, he can fight monsters. He's destined to be this great and powerful man. But by the end of it and throughout, we get all these stories about great men uh, failing <laughs> to do the stuff that they're supposed to do, right? You know, they don't stop fights or wars from breaking out. They that's don't pretty, that's really protect nice their family. And, uh, relatable, you know? Well, and, yeah. And Hrothgar builds like the eighth wonder of the world, but he can't protect his own court despite having this magnificent court and like this wealthy area. He still is living in this grim, dark fantasy place because Grendel's just torturing him. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we're also told that the hall that he builds uh, will eventually burn down in a kind of like, you know, I guess great bit of both realism because like nothing, nothing humans make will truly last forever, et cetera, et cetera. Uh. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like the negative version of, uh, you know, Gilgamesh's story. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, whoever yeah. wrote Gilgamesh's story was like, we can be immortal through great works. Then whoever wrote Beowulf was like, now we can't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I do wonder if there's a big cultural shift, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Joe, maybe you could talk about this. Uh, is there a, a Scandinavian fatalism that makes it seem like... Uh, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing where we are kind of like, we don't really look to the future, but we also think we're immortal. Like we think we've reached the end game. Hmm. And it makes us like really bad at innovation. <laughs> like where we jump on trends really quickly. Like there's no country in the world that has bought as many electric cars as we have per capita. Like they're more common than gasoline cars in the cities. Sure. But it isn't because we're like, oh, we look to the future. We're going to be so great. It's just because it's like, oh, this is cleaner. Yeah. It, it, there's no, there's no idealism behind it. We're all like, it's like we're mentally dying. Like we're like, but not dying. We kind of like, it's like someone sprayed us with varnish and we're here to stay just this way. But we accept new technology from others. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think one of the. Um... I mean, we do innovate. I mean, like I'm not going to shit on any Norwegian scientists. I mean, they're doing a good <laughs> job, guys. But it's like the mentality of the country isn't like, yeah, we're we're going to be great for the future. It's like we're great now, and this is like this is perfection. No one can reach this. Well, everyone can reach this, but we have we don't have anywhere to go. Like, there's no up now. We're just great. But in kind of like a, not in a way like we're the king of the hill, more in like a grandfather who's like done building the house and it's like, yeah, I don't need to do anything more now. Yeah, it's so weird because I, I do get some of that vibe even in, in Beowulf, right? And it's probably just because 
you know, the way a lot of these texts are formed and, and it uh, is confusing for some people to read it um, because it's not a linear story. I mean, it is very much a linear story of like, here's Beowulf's life. But it's not like, logical, but it's not linear. Yes, because like all mythology, what it does is it's hyper aware of all things and how uh, kind of like the time has passed and shifted. So, you know, it it is talking about Beowulf at that moment, you know, fighting Grendel, you know, the monster who's trying to um, stop merriment and uh, noise from breaking out at Hrothgar's Hall, right? But at the same time, like interspersed in between, it tells you both future events that haven't happened yet, and it contextualizes past events. Mm. So it'll be like, okay, Hrothgar has built this hall, and you know, eventually the monsters will be destroyed, but Hrothgar's hall, uh, Herat, will eventually be burned down uh, in a war that he cannot avert. <laughs> and like, that's going to happen in the future. Uh, you know, we get this interesting dramatic irony kind of sprinkled throughout um, all the way to the end you know when Beowulf is being eulogized by his people on the one hand they're like wow what a great king he protected us for so long but he went and fought a dragon and he's dead now so in the future all the enemies and maybe even allies that we used to have will turn on us because now we're weak is this like the story kings use as an excuse to not have to be on the front lines anymore? <laughs> you know, it, it maybe. Because uh... it used to be that kings had to be in the front lines, otherwise they weren't fit to rule. And then that suddenly changed to protect the king at all costs. I, I know for sure that uh, Headley, the, the translator for this edition, is definitely making a commentary on um, kind of the, the vanity of um, king or uh, you know wealth hoarding type leaders and men uh, specifically, um, and how that vanity can like harm more than just themselves. Um, and so it was interesting because yeah, what is what is Beowulf's role? Right, this dragon bursts out. Uh, he's an old man, but also like the greatest hero. Uh, in his kingdom currently. You know, unlike Hrothgar, who Beowulf goes to help at the start of the story, Hrothgar was powerless. Hrothgar couldn't defeat Grendel. So Beowulf comes in mercenary style and defeats it for him, which is both good, but also shows that like Hrothgar needed outside help, right? Uh, that he's weak in that regard. So we follow Beowulf to the end of his life where he defeats this dragon and he's strong enough to defeat the dragon, but some combination of it was his time uh, or that he's just old now, he also dies, which will inevitably lead his people into chaos because they have no rulership, right? Beowulf, for whatever reason, it's not explained, didn't have uh, a lineage to carry on. Uh, there will be no stability, no trees, no uh, peaceful transition of power. Well, that's uh, so important. Oh, that, feels, when... that feels like like relevant now <laughs> when they do the time jump it's also important to know that uh he beowulf defeats a whole bunch of people like he spends enormous amounts of time fighting foreign enemies and yep. wiping out just everybody and he's like at the forefront of the battle lines and he's just a, a monster so he 
the reason that nobody's invaded so far is just because they're all afraid of him. Yeah. But now he's dead. Now he's dead. And now there's no protection anymore. And that era is gone. Both, I mean, it, it's it's gone for them in the story, but also it, it's, I think it, 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 it echoes age. Well, not only that, it, it echoes a, another theme in the whole text of Beowulf where, you know, if we do want to make comparisons with Gilgamesh, I, I think they're apt because they're both about um, larger than life epic heroes. Um, you know, in Beowulf, we get all these stories about people trying to maintain that stability and that safety. And we get stories about how it uh, fails every time. Um, so like when the bards sing about stuff like Sigurd or when they sing about um, that little Finn uh, side story where it's like, oh, we're going to try to fix these feuds or, or stop wars from breaking out. Uh, it doesn't work yeah. because of you know history or previous bad blood or the actions of people in the tale. Uh, it just delays the inevitable. And in this case, the inevitable is everyone dying, <laughs> fighting in a war. <laughs> well, and, and they, they humanize it too by saying they'll throw a lot of those people a bone with that refrain, uh, he was a good king. Mm-hmm. Or there was a good king or whatever it is. Because they, they, even if they failed, they tried. You know, they tried their best. <laughs> and they at least acknowledge it sometimes yeah it's definitely uh, a translation that thinks more about the uh people in the periphery you know uh if, if this game if this sorry game if this uh, story was a game uh <laughs> you know beowulf would be the player character and it, it does try to think about the the non-player side characters like what would happen to this you know poor woman now that her king is dead oh well, here's a whole lament where she's like well that's my family raped and murdered because our king is dead now that's gonna happen soon yay yay <laughs> he had to kill that dragon on his own didn't he yeah there was definitely like uh wiglaf is a, a hero who a hero he's a, a soldier that accompanies beowulf in his final moments um there's some great shade thrown there too actually about uh, younger warriors and whether they're worth it or not. Um, but yeah, he and they all run away except for Wiglaf. Yeah. So, you know, once again, part of the consequence of Beowulf being so great is that he surrounded himself with these warriors who never were actually tested. Also, uh, oh, sucks because he's great. Yeah. It's like playing Total War and then just like having all your experience go to one general and you ignore the other troops. A little bit, right? So, you know, this dragon bursts out and Beowulf is like, well, obviously I'll take care of this and I'll take my uh, honor guard with me and like all but one uh, run away or suddenly had something else to do. <laughs> Pee themselves in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forget they had a chicken on the fire. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, just Excuse me. There's some sense that Beowulf knows either knows his time's up or is just frustrated about being old or maybe both because he purposely says that he's not going to bring an army, that he's just going to take on the dragon himself and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> yeah. And that feels like a kind of like a suicide by cop, but the cop is a dragon kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I don't know um, how much this would have to, to play into it because 
it is an Anglo-Saxon story and it was written um, when the authors clearly had some Christian um, influence in because it describes a lot of the monsters as being you know, descendants of Cain, um, you know, from Cain and Abel and that kind of stuff. Like, like they're biblically evil creatures. You know, it doesn't describe them as like giants or, or things that are more traditionally um, oh, yeah. Scandinavian. Um, but I do wonder, because there is this weird undercurrent of Beowulf will praise God, you know, capital Christian G, um, but also talk about fate and talk about how things are just how they're supposed to be. And I, I do wonder if his final fight with the dragon is, well, he was such a powerful hero. Um, how much of there is that conception that you have to die in battle in order to go to the best possible heaven? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, maybe the dragon is the only one that can finally like punch his ticket and like, because he's gone to all these other wars, all these other battles. Yeah, because he has to die in a glorious way. He can't die in his uh, like in his bed like a sick old man. Yeah, like if you're a good guy, you still go to like Oscar, right? But I mean, you want to be in the halls. Yeah, and uh, for that, you're gonna need you're gonna need something splendid to happen. So you mm-hmm. know, bring your shitty entree and um, entourage, and you know, fight the dragon. Yeah. Well, and he still delivers the killing blow. He's the one that that actually stabs him in the side of the head. Yeah. Yeah, while he's in the jaw, like the dragon's mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that is that is like uh, that is like some Hercules stuff turned up to eleven. Yeah, it's metal. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty classic. Um, there's some really good. Once again, like a lot of the Norse-inspired, uh, I don't know, mythos for lack of better terms, um, really directly influence a lot of uh, modern fantasy. Like nearly all of the tropes. Uh, are traced back through Tolkien, uh, who, of course, did a translation of Beowulf, which apparently wasn't very good, uh, but also went on to, you know, write Lord of the Rings. And so all the the pieces are there, because, like, in that final fight, um, there's the idea that they're fighting this dragon, you know, this terrible worm, and um, Beowulf and Wiglaf are working together, and, like, Wiglaf, uh, with the assist, uh, stabs the dragon in such a way that it, like, prevents it from breathing fire, which gives Beowulf that extra minute to uh, like finally the, kill it. Uh, like the original like World of Warcraft boss. Yeah. You know, you have someone to interrupt attacks and everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you just know that Beowulf has, uh, has been the basis for a lot of RPGs out there. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Well, and Wiglaf's like Bard, where, where he's fighting alone and everybody else runs away. Like, mm-hmm. And when yeah. Smog is burning down... Uh, the lake town bard is standing just by himself by the end <laughs> yeah and the only thing that comes up to help him is a bird you know he's a hunter <laughs> <laughs> sends the pet well let's let's take a minute i'm going to read read today's ad and then we can get back to talking about beowulf uh, today's ad is bought to us by jack's frost donuts the newest fashion glaze that's a whole other experience Jack's Frost Donuts are made special by convicted felons, giving them the opportunity to build their resume while watching porn. I don't want to sugarcoat <laughs> these donuts. They're made with semen. Don't knock it until you fried it. Jack's Frost. It's the cream of the slop. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, Jack. Jack. Come on, man. I don't, I don't think it has a legal business model. I don't think so either. I, also, I don't think it's sanitary. It's 2020. Jesus Christ. 
Well, they, they might they might sanitize it. I mean, I don't know how. Yeah, like you test everyone for COVID before they, you know, get into their little booth with the porn mag. <laughs> like, I'll poke you in the nose, you poke your thing in a cup. Do you think? Do you think it'd be safe to boil it first, or maybe, or is it just? I honestly, I honestly don't know. If boiled jizz is better than just regular jizz. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, sanitation-wise, it's probably good to have boiled jizz on your donut, but it still doesn't sound that appetizing. I'm just gonna be honest. No, no. I mean, they they can pay us to run the ad, but I'm not going to eat one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they 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 pay us in money, right? They don't pay us in in merchandise because good. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So go out and buy their jizz donuts, guys. Um, there was one section of the of the story I wanted to read. I've been saving this one because I think. Going back to, I don't want to like circle back too far, but there's one thing I wanted to say about obtuseness is like when, when a poem doesn't make sense, I, I think there's, even though I don't want, a, I want a poem to make sense, you still want the language to be surprising. It doesn't have to be conversational. And um, there's a line in here that I thought was hilarious. And it's basically all the, all the line is saying is that uh, an heir can't be a king until the king dies. And the line is, we all know a boy can't daddy until his daddy's dead. And I think it's a, it's a good representation of this collection in general, because it's a good representative, because it it's surprising language, but I don't think anybody would have any difficulty understanding it. No. I mean, it is, it is, like, a, it is like kind of a universal truth too, though. Like, until until your parents die, you're not really truly an adult. You'll always be someone's kid. You know, you're you're not you're not truly like the head of yourself until your parents die. Or until you learn like that your parents aren't, you know, higher beings, they're just people. Exactly. Exactly. Um the the, the... The war band flew a golden flag over their main man. The salt sea saluted him. So too the storms. Um, There's a lot of alliteration, but I thought that line was pretty, especially because it's just, that's more generic sort of nature and man man being heroic and and framed by nature. I was very surprised to hear that him use the word daddy so many times. It sounded, like it sounded a little sexual. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's uh, definitely part of it. I've got a, a slightly longer piece here um, that I think would be good to read just because uh, it gives, I don't know, calling it whiplash is uh, a negative, but there is this um, comparison, right? A, a juxtaposition between... Uh, playing it straight like you know this is an epic heroic story that you know probably deserves a certain level of like gravitas um versus the like use of new language and diction that i think creates this great uh i don't know once again i I keep thinking of only negative things uh car wreck kind of like oh i need to pay attention um so i'm gonna i'm gonna read like i said it's a slightly longer bit um, probably like 50 lines almost 
Um, so this is, you know, we've kind of covered in the story of Beowulf. Beowulf turns up because there's this monster, Grendel, keeps eating people at Hrothgar's Hall, Herat. Uh, Grendel is upset because people are happy, so he keeps eating people. Uh, Beowulf turns up because Hrothgar, for like a decade plus, can't do anything about it. So Beowulf turns up, uh, literally defeats Grendel unarmed, uh, tears the monster's arm out of its socket. And they're just like, all right, cool, you did it. Great. They have a party. And then that night, Grendel's mother turns up and in revenge for the death of her son, kills Hrothgar's uh, best advisor. That still doesn't seem like a fair trade. It, it isn't, but it's interesting because the Grendel's mother is trying to basically operate under, you know, a war guild or like a feudal um, uh, uh, system. Feudal in this case, meaning like a feud, not, okay, that was confusing. Yeah, uh, no, like it's like Holmgun. There's yeah. a reason why they had Holmgun to, uh, to avoid this kind of stuff. Yeah, right. And of course, uh, it doesn't quite work because like Grendel was way worse. So there's not like a really good, easy um, tit for tat. Uh, yeah. Also, Grendel's mother is a, a, a woman. So perhaps she shouldn't even be participating in this kind of uh, conflict. But also, um, she's a monster. Coded, at, at the very least, as a monster. So obviously, there's a big thing of like, well, why does she get to, to do this? But Well, you know, hell has no fury like a woman scorned and you just killed her kid. Yeah, and I think this talks about that. Um, and I, I think, you know, having this be translated um, uh, by a woman, right, or at the very least from a very particular feminist uh, angle, does yeah. allow her to pitch the story to be more sympathetic. Well, not not only that, she, the first image, her, her first exposure to Beowulf was Grendel's mother. Like, she saw it in a book of fairy tales or, like, fairy tale illustrations or something. And she saw a depiction of Grendel's mother and was hooked. And later when she read Beowulf, she realized she made the connection. And yeah. she always saw it as an empowering figure. Right. Um, so I'm going to read a, a selection. This is um, Beowulf and Hrothgar and their kind of war band have arrived at this swamp where Grendel's mother lives. Yeah. Um because they're there to get revenge. You know, they see the the head, the severed head of uh, Hrothgar's advisor. And um, at the end of this, I think we'll see this, this big reversal. So, you know, bear with me. The company stared as water boiled with blood and bones. A war horn sounded over and over, but the soldiers sagged and sat down. The mirror was full of monsters, too many to mention. Serpentine salt dragons, lizards in lethargy lying on stones, the kinds of creatures that surface seething in ships' wakes to bear teeth and twist about an oar, foil fishers, and bring bad omens to sailors. The beasts dove, furious and frightened at the noise, the bugle and battler's shouts, the shrillness of seekers in their secret space. Agit drew his bow and struck the slithering one, an arrow pierced its scales, it struggled and thrashed in the water. The other men, invigorated, sought to join the killing. A second shot, a third. Then they slung themselves into the shallows and speared it. This monster they could control. They cornered it, clubbed it, tugged it onto the rocks, 
still birthed it from its mere mother, deemed it damned, and made it a miscarriage. They examined its entrails, awed and aggrieved. Meanwhile, Beowulf gave zero shits. <laughs> so as they were dragging up a monster, they killed it, and then they forcibly gave it an abortion, and Beowulf was like, nah, it's okay. Yeah. But he had bigger fish to fry. He was there yeah. for... And it goes on to describe him, you know, doing the, the usual getting ready to go into battle scene. But, um, you know, it, it's that tonality. You know, there's a lot of alliteration in there. Um, and even then, the, like, uh, mothering imagery in almost a, um, a bloodborne sense, I guess, right? Making mm. every monster in some ways related to uh, femininity or uh, the, the female experience in, in some way, shape, or form um, is kind of served throughout the text. You know, because what Headley does is she makes the dragon uh, a female, uh, and then the idea that the thief stole a golden cup is one layer. But then there's this also idea that her private space was um, invaded, right, that or sounds violated. Like, that sounds like a euphemism for rape. Yeah. Because uh, in like old, like uh, like the Wiccans, for instance, the male symbol is a dagger and the female symbol is a cup. Yeah, or a goblet. I I think I think so. I think she's definitely playing with that. Um, and I think that you're gonna, you know, as that scene goes on, Beowulf, you know, dives down into the water for a well, whole day. Why, uh, that's why Bilbo's name sounds so close to a dildo. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, but seriously, that that is very that is very interesting. Yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah, I mentioned Holmgang like a couple of minutes ago, mm-hmm. and I forgot to explain for the audience what that might mean. Sure. So Holmgang is like uh, in at least in I think it was all of Scandinavia, at least in old Norway and uh, and and Iceland, it was a it was a like a judicial thing you could do uh, as a form of revenge, so that you didn't like just have two families like if i killed your brother then you come and kill my brother mm-hmm. and then i get pissed so i kill your sister then you kill my sister and it goes for on forever you know eye for an eye makes the whole world blind so if i had done like an like really egregious thing to you you could challenge me to home gong and we would have a duel either to first blood or death and yeah it was extremely illegal to uh like take vengeance upon the victor of that duel no matter who it was so like then 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 the the village would kill you. Like that would be everyone's beef then. So that you were not allowed to enact vengeance against the results of a home gang. Like most of them didn't end in deaths because it's just like oh you cut me okay that's okay you win, right? Uh, but you know sometimes when you get cut you get cut in the face and they didn't really have like even band aids back then like proper mm-hmm. ones. So I mean you die from the wound most of the time. Right. I do think it's interesting that um, between this story and something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, which is a, a Mesopotamian context, yeah. which of course I'm going to really, really collapse by making the statement. Uh, but it is interesting, right? Because the Hammurabi's Code, which you know you do briefly refer to, eye for an eye, uh, and what you were just talking about, and um, I've also heard the, like I said, the phrase "weir guild," the man price, essentially. Yeah. Um, it's it's the same thing, right? Technically, that eye for eye statement 
uh, on its surface, it seems tough, but if you read into it, it is a legal definition of, you know, the person could either pay. Yeah. You got to make a restitution. You got to yeah. make right. you, you pay for it, or you could be, yes, physically maimed. Uh, and I think this is a similar um, yeah. concept. You know, two cultures very um, focused on the, I don't know if even calling it honor is correct, because really it's much more just like the look and the idea of like respect. Yeah, um, it's like, you, you know, you've wronged me. I, we got to yeah. make this right. Right. Either it reminds me. Or are, give are me you, are you familiar with the uh, the tale of, of Thorstein Staffstruck? No, I'm not. Okay. It's um, Icelandic, I think. Uh, and it's just this little story that is essentially about this concept. So I'll, I'll do it yeah. in, in a very short amount of time because it's only tangentially related uh, in that, you know, can Grendel's mother claim that she... Uh, can make this revenge killing uh, considering who Grendel is and, and all this other stuff. Uh, but in the story of Thorstein Staffstruck, um, these two guys who are kind of buds uh, were having a horse race and one guy accidentally or not, depending, uh, hits the other guy with like a stick that they were using to like make their horses run faster. Yeah. And Thorstein's like, hey man, no, no big deal. Yeah, you hit me with a stick, but let's let bygones be got it bygones uh but the problem was is that's technically not allowed right like legally he was supposed to get restitution for it uh because he was struck uh by another you know man of equal status uh, and because he let it go he gets kind of labeled as like a coward until eventually like he has to go confront him and fight this duel uh where he kills the guy and like his whole life kind of sprawls out from there into like a small mini feud. And it seems like the moral of that story is like, well, he should have just made a, a big deal of it at the time, hashed it all out. And then it wouldn't have led to like, I think four other deaths. And <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's like my grandmother used to say, you know, it's better with the, you know, a little, uh, what the fuck do you say in English? A, li- a little loud hell than, mm. uh, no, no, a little loud rambunctious fights than, uh, you know, silent hell. Yeah. Is it Silent Hell Festers? Yeah. I can see that. It doesn't translate well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what a good English uh, transliteration would be, right? Better to be aggressive than passive aggressive, maybe? That is a, that, that's perfect. Okay. This is why he's the professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you heard of the saga of uh, Gunnlaug Omtunga? It sounds familiar. Uh, probably translated as Gunnlaug Wormtongue in English. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I've heard of it, but I don't think I've... I don't think I know the story well. What's going on there? Okay, so it's, it's basically much the same. Like, it ends in a home going. It's, it starts with uh, this uh, man dreaming that his daughter will be, like, the cause of a lot of death, Right. Right. If he has a daughter, she'll be the cause of a lot of death, and so he wants to like have basically uh, like when when his wife gives birth, he wants to have an abortion essentially. Like he wants to put her in the forest so she dies, right? Sure. He doesn't want her to be the cause of a lot of death, but you know the wife is like, well, I understand what you're saying, but I also don't really want you know, I don't want to kill my daughter, mm-hmm. so she gives 
the daughter to some friends of hers instead and just tells her husband that ah yeah i put her in the forest right. and then a few years later the daughter grows up and it's all like out in the open revealed and the dad is like oh shit you're my daughter i thought i thought you know my, my wife killed you right mm-hmm. and she's like apparently not and the dad is like well i mean can't kill you now you're my daughter okay come in move into the house right so right. he becomes his daughter for real then uh, and you know he loves her very much and it's all great uh, and then it comes time to uh for her to like uh, like get a boyfriend right she needs she needs a husband at some point so she can move out of her house mm-hmm. uh oh yeah by the way i forgot to say that in in the in the the story there's two birds fighting there's a white bird and a black bird that fights like a raven and a, a albino crow i guess um uh, but uh, or swan I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, uh, so the daughter is like, okay, well, I mean, living, I'm mean, living in Iceland. There's not a lot of dudes around, and back then, uh, dudes had to kind of like prove themselves by traveling the world, and they had to be show that they were men, right? You're not a man if you just like lived on a farm your whole life. Mm-hmm. Like, what girl's gonna want you? So, uh, this guy, who's the son of uh, this other guy, obviously he would be. Uh, he gets uh, some equipment and stuff. He's told to go out and seek his destiny and prove himself. And he uh, has a rival. And they're both after the same girl. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's not sure which one she wants to pick. So she wants to see who is the like successful guy when they come back. And they kind of have like this rivalry where they travel through. They first travel to Norway to seek their destiny, as everyone did in the old sagas from Iceland, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was like the old magical land where everything happened, where people became kings and stuff. So they went there. They traveled through down to England. Uh, the one, uh, the challenger of uh, Gunnlaug was, uh, he was literally named Raven. Uh, and he was, uh, he was always a kind of step ahead, right? But Gunnlaug was a skald, like a bard. Uh, and uh, poetry was extremely like valuable back in the day, like, the, the old Norsemen loved it, right? So he basically didn't have much money after he spent basically everything on a sword and a shield. Uh, so he traveled from like place to place and he told, told like either the song or did a poem or just said some really nice words about the local uh, Jarl or king or liege, right? Mm-hmm. They would be like, oh yeah, that's some really great words. Here, come stay with me for a night, right? Uh, and they gave him gifts, like he got a really expensive cloak from one of the kings of England and everything, right? And they travel a little bit. They uh, constantly are, are they're constantly competing. They're traveling throughout all of Northern Europe. They end up back in Norway, and then they're going to have like a duel. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, God, I'm telling this from a very fragmented memory, because I think actually <laughs> they went back to Iceland at some point, and he married the girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what happened. He married the girl. Uh and they had like a whole thing going. But then he traveled to Norway again and he met his old rival and they challenged each other to a fight. And in the fight, uh, one kills the other, but he also gets hit in the head with a sword. So he dies like a few days later from an infection in, mm-hmm. a, in some friend's keep. And the girl is like, kind of like, she's, she's had about this. She has a bigger role in the story, but I can't remember what she was up to. Anyway... Uh, like she remembers the prophecy her dad told her about like the black bird and the, the white bird fighting to death and she realized it was them. Hmm. 
yeah i mean it is a really good story and there's like i dropped out like three thirds of the story uh there's a lot more stuff happening a lot more characters there are some friends some warriors right. they uh, they have like guilds they join and everything it's a it's a really good saga yeah uh, it seems and- very familiar um I haven't had a chance to read some of the uh, Icelander uh, sagas, if it's part of that. Yeah, it's... Uh, what was the yeah. name? Yeah, 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 here. Yeah, it's Gunlug uh, Omtunga, and the other guy is Raven Onunson, and then mm-hmm. it's uh, Helga Torsteinsdotter. Hmm. Okay. Helga and Fagra, as like Helga the Beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out for it, because, you know... Um... What's so interesting to me about that uh, and Beowulf, right, is that it there was a time when it was a pretty wide-ranging tradition. Uh, <laughs> you know, so like the Anglo-Saxons being uh, originally, other than the indigenous peoples of uh, England, United, you know, of what is the United Kingdom, the various tribes there, Celts and other ones, uh, basically from Scandinavia to like the upper part of, you know, Germany and France and Gaul into Ireland and Scotland and uh, England and Wales, right. All the way out to Greenland and Iceland, like all had this like interconnected uh, language where you, uh, what is it? Medieval Icelandic and uh, old English are fairly similar. Like people can kind of understand each other. Uh, So you did have this like big wide ranging culture that had a lot of these similarities uh, in between them. And I feel like, and I mean, I'm sure Joe doesn't have anything to say about this, but maybe Jeremy does. Uh, I feel like it's so interesting that we don't really get a chance to study a lot of that stuff uh, in the U.S., right? Like, I know I've read Beowulf, like, ooh, for school, I don't know, somewhere between six and ten times, Uh, particularly one bad year of college where, like, every class I was in, I think assigned it. <laughs> but had uh, classes with Beowulf. <laughs> but like I, I didn't get a chance to do a lot of like Icelandic um or Norse or Scandinavian stories otherwise. Um even my, though they're all very similar. My tinfoil hat theory on that is that it's a twofold problem. One is that uh the way schools are the way schools and accreditation and classes are set up it's it's so structured that it doesn't really give teachers a lot of room to play around sure and two uh and that's even if they want to i mean i think teachers need to be paid more to attract better teachers on top of it but you know whatever Mm. that's a whole that's a whole other thing and the second thing is i actually blame t.s Eliot for for the other half of that because (laughs) he was a staunch traditionalist and he's responsible for the English major and he canonized all very warlike. He, he said, these are the stories that matter. This is what English is and all you other people can suck it. And for some reason, <laughs> everybody just doubled down and the more prestigious university, the more they double down on classical studies and, and the less inventive they get somehow. Right. And everybody tends to follow like the Ivy League and what they're doing. And, and Harvard will absolutely teach everything that's on that canon list. Like they hand you the canon list your freshman year at some at some institutions, and you're expected to read X percentage by the time you graduate throughout your classes. I mean, what's uh, 
I have two comments about that. I mean, one what's interesting is that it actually is uh, incredibly reactionary so that uh, during times of tumult, uh, it gets more traditional. <laughs> like they added more things from classical studies onto that list. Because I think, uh, I remember it maybe during the Obama era, uh, there were like that list got released and it was somehow like, you know, straighter and wider. Uh, than even it had been. Um, they add like Virginia Woolf or something like a token female writer, and just like, yeah, this is this will this will do. This will count. Um, <laughs> but I think the other thing that's a great bookend to this is, um, you know, T. S. Eliot was a, a modernist. <laughs> yes, yes, he was. And, and in fact, when when I'm really getting kind of sick and tired of of people coming in and asking me if I've read The Wasteland. I get yeah. that question probably four times a year in my workshop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's another one of those ones that's like kind of dense and like you got to push yourself through and like. But but it's oh. it's so oh. intentionally dense. Like, have you ever seen the reference list for that? Because one of T. S. Eliot's things, one one of the cornerstones of his traditionalism was that in order to be considered an English great, you had to plug yourself into the rest of English literary tradition and. Sure part of that was just making references and some of the references seem so arbitrary mm-hmm. I, I, i've gone through that poem many times and i've followed even like the biblical ones i looked them up and when i get bored i don't have i don't have a life but anyway yeah the- i found i found a summary of the of the saga i mentioned earlier that i i i, I feel terrible for butchering it it is a great story <laughs> so it, it starts in Iceland. There's the rich farmer, Torstein. He has a dream, you know, about the whole death and everything. The dream says he'll get a beautiful daughter and that people will die fighting over her. So well, he tries to yeah. change the dream by having his wife, Jufred, uh, put the kid in the forest. She does it, but she can't. She doesn't have the heart, so she puts it in a farm. Six years later, he sees how beautiful the kid is and he's like, oh, okay, it's okay. You know, he, he's, he's not pissy about it. And through... Helga, the girl's uh, upbringing, she becomes a good friend of Gunlaug, uh, Wormtongue, right? Because they're the same age. Uh, Gunlaug is eventually asking Torstein if he uh, can marry her. And Torstein doesn't like the idea that Gunlaug is planning to travel abroad. And he also thinks he has too much of a temperament. Uh, But he still promises that he can he he, get, he gets to marry her if he can come back in 3 years as a man with a better temperament like a proper man right like an adult right uh so like they they want to marry each other but before the dad says okay she has he has to basically grow up so he leaves as a youth from Iceland to meet kings and you know powerful relatives and stuff he goes to Sweden uh and he basically joins Kong Adelsrod in England. He's Olaf, Olaf Svenske, which is literally called Olaf the Swede. He's the king of Sweden, of course. So he does this to show he's man enough to take Helga the Beautiful as wife. As Olaf Svenske, he meets uh, Raven Ornundsson, you know, who's also from Iceland. That's the other guy. And he ha- basically has a rap battle in front of the Swedish king with this guy, like a bard's rap battle. Mm-hmm. And he just, yeah, he, 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 he trashes 
the poem Raven is telling the king. Because mm-hmm. they all have to tell the king a poem to show that, you know, hey, can I sleep here? And he trashes the poem. He says it's shitty. Uh, Raven, like, he demands revengeance. And he goes that by going back to, uh, to Iceland and just uh, demanding to marry Helga. Uh, who was still promised to Gunnlaug after three years. Uh, but, you know, so he's like, no, no, I mean, get- can't can't marry her. Like, you can't marry me. My dad said so. Uh, and then Gunnlaug is too late to get home in time uh, because the one king, the English king, Adelsrod, that he was uh, buddying up with, uh, was uh, demanded that he stay because the Danish had threatened to go to war. And he said, no, you got to stay here in case, in case there's a battle. Uh, and so he's delayed to get home. And when he gets home, it's like the day of, like it's the evening and it's the day of the wedding between Raven and Helga. Yeah. So obviously Gunnlaug is really pissy about this and he wants Holmgang with Raven. But Holmgang was illegal in Iceland. It's like recently legal in Iceland because it was considered like a violent barbaric tradition, mm-hmm. right? Because, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, good Christian people. But in Norway, everything kind of goes still because it's too large. You know, it's, you can't reform that country in, in that short time. So Norway is still basically a, like a whole mess there. And they, like, Gunnlaug challenged Raven and Raven accepted it, but they had to travel to Norway to do the Holmgang. Hmm. You're not allowed to have the duels in Iceland anymore. It's illegal there. Right. Uh, Raven is killed. Gunnlaug is wounded in the head. And he dies three days later from the infection. Helga marries another new guy. Uh, she lives kind of a long, long, happy life. He's a good guy. And, uh, uh, you know, she has kids and everything. But she later dies from a, you know, disease while she's like, resting her head in uh, her husband's lap. But she's also holding the cape that she was given to Gunnlaug as a young girl. Hmm. So she's thinking about him while, you know, dying in her husband's arms. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a way better story than the nonsense I told you. <laughs> I'll be honest; it made a little more sense the second time around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, does anybody else have anything they want to add before we wrap up here? Uh, I'm I, I'm very happy that I got to wrap up the proper story. Uh, but you don't. <laughs> No, I, I liked hearing it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's only fitting. You know, we're kind of telling and retelling these stories to ourselves. Uh, and I think that's key, right? You know, yeah. we. Uh, I call them a modern translation. Yeah. <laughs> I think I gave a really succinct example today of why, like, you should write down stories, like, why oral tradition is not good enough. <laughs> I think it was an important example. <laughs> Hop in that time machine and go make your case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's it. We got everything? I think so. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, Don. This was oh. a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Thank you again. This has been Moot. Please follow us on Twitter at the Moot Podcast and visit us at the Moot subreddit. Have a good one. <laughs>